I read an article from Harvard Medical School that stated that self-confidence has a bell curve, so it gradually rises during teen years, peaks in the middle age years, and then declines after age 60. So I'm way on the downhill slope of that curve. And midlife is where people tend to occupy the highest positions of power and status and importance. They are working, they're involved in relationships, they're, they tend to be, on as they get to that top of the curve, more adventurous about trying new things. And older adults, the article says, lose these roles and abilities, bodies break down, the world moves on, the next generation overtakes them. And the article gives advice on how to combat this loss of confidence as you age. And it's really some non-earth-shaking stuff like get up and get dressed and look ready to do something. Don't shuffle around your slippers all day. Try some new things. Make and engage your friends. It's, it's not bad advice. The article, however, doesn't end with this statement, which I would have maybe added to it. Regardless of what you do, don't kid yourself. You're going to die someday, sooner since you're old. So most of your self-confidence has always been misplaced, and it still is. So I'm not cynical, but many people, as they become cynical, as they become older, they become cynical, and they begin to, to reason in their minds, when I was young, I thought I knew things. As I'm older, I know better. I thought things were more stable than they are. Nothing is really stable or sure. And sometimes this is increased humility, but sometimes it's just increased cynicism. So I've done weddings where I've heard or seen older people say as they watch young people gaze in each other's eyes, you just wait, just wait. Someday you'll be like I am. Old Christians patting young Christians on the head saying, yeah, I used to have that kind of passion too. But sadly, younger and younger people are becoming cynical. This is not that this is an entirely new phenomenon, but it is profound in how quickly it's happening and how young it's happening, that cynicism's setting in. And so you get this unfortunate combination of the arrogance of youth, I'm right, and the cynicism of age, you can't know anything. And so you get this combination of, I'm right, you can't know anything. And it can be difficult to find a place of security in the world, especially the more we experience and the more we know about the world. Historians say, with very few exceptions, the world has virtually always been at war in recorded history. America has had about 15 years where there wasn't a war we were involved in with at least 1,000 deaths. That's how they measure war. Disease has been constant, disasters one after another, national borders constantly changing, ideas about what's real and true and important changing. And this has always been true, but now we have instant access to information that brings increased insecurity. And then you add to that all the personal struggles and disappointments and sufferings that we experience. These are all the things that can shake the foundations of our lives. It is naive to believe that human institutions are places of ultimate security. When I was younger, I thought there were people that were squared away. I thought the people running the world had it together, the politicians, the, the doctors, the generals, the CEOs. I thought they had it together. Then I got to know them, and I thought, they don't. They don't have it together. So we can be secure in relationships, but not ultimately so. I can't keep my daughter from the suffering she's going through. Our relationship with her is secure, but no one can keep her from the suffering. This is different than the knee-jerk reaction against anyone who says you can know anything for certain. There is no room for certainty anywhere now other than personalized versions of truth that refuse to be fact-checked by reality. It's, it's used to be called existentialism, where I had an experience, and so my, now my life has meaning. 
But if you say, well, explain your experience and why you think it's in line with the facts of reality, why it gives you a sense of meaning, and you would be scorned. You're asking me to explain my experience shows you're narrow and naive. Nobody can explain experience. It just is. Now, there are some experiences that defy explanation, but certainty is necessary when it comes to the core beliefs of our lives. Certainty has to be based on something external to us, not just an experience or a feeling. When I was in college, I interviewed for a youth job at a local church. I was a brand new believer. I had no business applying for that, interviewing for that job, and they had no business even talking to me. And I was naive. I thought church was church. Their church got a cross on the, on the, on the building. They believe the gospel. Well, they didn't. I was asked by the pastor, what's your goal for the youth? What would it be? And I said, well, for the youth to become Christians and grow in their relationship with Christ. And he said, we need to define what we mean by becoming Christian. And I thought, well, I know what I mean by that. And he handed me a book that talked about different experiences people had had. Like this person went outside one day, looked at the sunrise, and felt that his life had purpose. I said, okay, that's weird, but okay. This person was lonely, started going to church, and found meaning. Only one of these many stories said, this person believed the gospel, she repented and became a Christian. I thought, that's really the only one in there that, that became a Christian. I didn't take the job. It wasn't going to be a good fit. And God uses sunrises and loneliness to draw people to the gospel, but people are born again when they believe the gospel and God saves them. Subjective experience does not make up for concrete reality. And Christians are faced with a world where confidence in the truth is seen as dogmatic, arrogant, and now even seen as cruel or mean. And certainty, any signs of certainty, is a sign of being naive. Uncertainty and confusion are embraced and celebrated. Ironically, there is a whole lot of certainty about uncertainty out there. So how is this working out? Well, the evidence says not well at all. And people are free to disagree. But for me, it's self-evident. Higher rates of anxiety and depression, more lifestyle-driven diseases, higher divorce rates, suicide rates less satisfaction and gratitude overall with life, work, and relationships, an epidemic of loneliness as per our Surgeon General, and the, the U.S. government wants to appoint a federal office to combat loneliness. I think that's a terrible idea. Today we begin the letters of John, and there are three of them. He also wrote the Gospel of John, and I hope to go there in about two years, and he wrote Revelation. And to read John's letters is to enter a world marked by assurance, confidence, knowledge, boldness, and there's a call in his letters, a challenge to be certain and to live with certainty, which was countercultural then as it is now. He wrote in 1 John 5, 13, I've written these things that you will know you have eternal life. So a central theme is certainty, but not certainty about everything, but about the main thing, about what would be called your controlling belief. You know, I can, I can be certain that it's going to be sunny tomorrow and plan a picnic, and I can be disappointed. But I'm not undone because that was not a controlling certainty, a controlling belief. But your controlling belief is what determines the course of your life, what ultimately is true and real, what you're going to give your life for. And John says that we must be certain about the gospel, certain about the truth of God. Certainty doesn't mean that you never feel doubt. Many of the great Christians of the past and the present have had times of deep doubt and darkness but they believe their beliefs and doubt their doubts, not the other way around. John loves words like seen and know and confidence. And some would say, well, yeah, John, you know, he lived back in, in the, the easy days. He didn't live in our times of uncertainty. I say, really? He was a Christian in the Roman Empire in the late first century. He was hounded for his faith, 
Most of his friends were murdered. He was the last surviving apostle. Ancient history reports that they tried to kill him with boiling oil. He survived, horribly injured, scarred. He was banished to a remote island off the Turkish coast. He was the only of the 12 to die from natural causes. And he wrote this letter as an old man in his late 80s. He reportedly had to be carried into worship service because he was so crippled up. So he didn't have it easy, but he had not lost his confidence in the gospel as the truth and power of God. He remained certain, not about everything, but about the main thing. He's seen nothing but turmoil all around him, but the truth, he writes, has not changed. He's certain of it. So who was John? We, we know some things about him from the Bible. He was one of the twelve, but he was also one of Christ's inner circle, one of his three closest friends, his brother James, Peter, and him. When Jesus raised a young girl from the dead, he only let these three guys witness the event. It was these three that were on the mountain when he was transfigured. It was these three who were asked to go into kind of the inner garden and stay awake in the night trail, and these three all fell asleep. He had a special relationship with Jesus. Jesus gave him very close access, I think because the Lord knew the role John would play. He needed a front row view. He called himself the one Jesus loved five times in his gospel. And this is not arrogance like I'm special, but it was a phrase he used when speaking of himself. So instead of saying, I, John, was there, he would say things like the one Jesus loved was there. And the focus was not on John, but on the one who loved John. He wasn't name dropping. I know Jesus. He was, he was saying, Jesus loves me. And I think we could all, with humility and gratitude, call ourselves that if we're Christians I'm the one Jesus loves. In John 20, when Mary discovers the empty tomb, Peter and John take off running for the tomb. And John writes that both were running, but he outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So basically, I'm faster than Peter. But that's not really what he was saying. I don't think he was bragging about his speed. These are the kind of details you find in actual eyewitness accounts. If this was just fabricated, he wouldn't make up some kind of boastful statement like that. He was just saying this is what happened. He was a fisherman like Peter. In fact, many disciples were. Jesus gave him and his brother James a nickname, Sons of Thunder. And we don't know why for sure, but there's a hint in the gospel. One time, Jesus and his friends were traveling towards Jerusalem. They were passing by this Samaritan village. And the people came out and said, you guys can't stop here. We don't want you here. And James and John said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And Jesus said, no, what is wrong with you? So I think maybe that tells some things about him being the son of thunder. He was all thunder and no lightning. Like Peter, who was similar in temperament, John came a long way from those early days. From do you want me to nuke them to this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our friends. He was later called a pillar in the early church by Paul. And that's how much he'd grown. But Jesus saw this potential in him before that on the cross, he just looked at John and said, take care of my mom. Now, what does that say about how Jesus trusted this guy? He may be a son of thunder, but I, I want him taking care of my mom. From historical accounts outside the scriptures, we find that really early important church leaders, after the, the biblical leaders had died, said that they had learned directly from John. He was the last apostle, so he was passing the faith on to the next generation. He was exiled from Turkey, Ephesus, to a nearby island about 60 miles out in the ocean, and there he wrote the book of Revelation. His gospel's been used as the best tool for evangelism that the church has, the gospel of John. 
Jim Peterson wrote a book a long time ago. I read it back in the 80s called Evangelism for Our Generation. And Peterson shows how to take a non-believer through an investigation of the gospel just using the book of John. Because all you need to know and trust Christ is in that gospel. This is John, the one Jesus loved, the front row seat John. Let's look at 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Verse 1, that which has always been we have heard, seen, touched. How could the eternal be heard, seen, touched? The word became flesh. God revealed it to us, verse 2. Verse 3, 4, we proclaim him to you so you can have fellowship with us and the Father and the Son and so our joy will be complete. The eternals come, we've heard, seen, touched him, and we proclaim the good news of Jesus to you so you'll join this salvation, fellowship with God and his church through the Son. This is not a statement of I believe, I think. This is not kind of my perspective. This is very direct statements of certainty. And his purpose is crystal clear. I want you to have fellowship with us, the church, and our fellowship is with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ so that you will know our joy. And this settled joy is a component of certainty. In these three verses, John goes from eternity past to eternity future, the beginning of time to that future time when the joy that is already will be fully ours. Look at how he began his gospel and how it corresponds to the opening of this letter. In John 1, he wrote, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. John's purpose in his gospel and his letters is the proclamation of the gospel is the historical manifestation of the eternal God. God with us. This is to be our controlling belief. In space and time, God became man in Christ to restore us to fellowship with himself. This has always been hard for people to swallow. It was no less hard in the first century than it is in the 21st century. In the first century, when John wrote this, some people believed and were saved. Some thought it was absurd. It's really no different today. But let me remind you of two important facts. Everyone lives by faith, and the world is a strange place. Everyone lives by faith. I've seen this sign in many yards since 2020. I saw it last week. Science is real. It's a kind of statement of faith like God is real. And I always think when I see it, of course science is real. What, what exactly are you trying to say? I never knocked on a door and asked them. But I think they're saying what I believe science says is real is real. And for some people, I've heard it's a statement of unbelief in God. Science is real and belief in God is not. Science is the systematic study of the physical world through observation, experimentation, and the testing of theories. So whenever you hear things like science is real and God is not, science is just proving God, that's a statement of faith. That's not science. Science has not and cannot do that. Everyone lives by faith. It's how we're wired. It's required because we're so limited. We're not om omniscient. We're not omnipresent. We're not omnipotent. We're very limited. So we, of course we live by faith. There's no way around it. And then second, reality is weirder or maybe more amazing than we can imagine. And so since reality is weird, people are coming up with ideas to make sense out of the world. 
Some physicists have spitballed theories like the multiverse to, to make sense out of how weird the world is and what they see in physics. Other leading physicists think this is nonsense. They, they don't know why the world is so weird, but they think the multiverse is sci-fi, not science. C.S. Lewis in his Narnia world and Tolkien in his Middle Earth world both speak of the deeper magic. And this is, magic is a supernatural for them. This is using fantasy to just broaden our minds about how the world is way more than we can imagine it to be. So we get used to the, the stuff of the world, and he's, they're saying, no, 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 there's way more. The supernatural is not anti-science. It's a fact of the cosmos. And so when John talks about the eternal God entering space and time, it's mind-blowing, but how can it not be? And John, in his opening statement, says that he's not introducing some innovation. This is not some new truth. His primary purpose in his letter is to present the unchanged original content of the gospel over against the novel new ideas that are popping up. You'll see this as we go through the letter. So we need, to, we need to make sure that when we understand when John is talking about the certainty of the gospel, he's not talking about the certainty of cultural, temporal manifestations of the gospel. So people want the certainty of kind of the things they were. We've got to get back to certain ways of dressing, singing songs, organizing church life, certain ways of ordering family life or civic life. We need to get back to the original gospel, back to Bible times, like 1950 or 1776 or 1990 or whatever. And this is this desire built into us to find stability, to find certainty. Certain things feel and are fluid and uncertain. And the more that happens, people go looking for these memories of certainty, I think. And, and sometimes things were not as certain as they thought they were. But they're looking, they're trying to replace their uncertainty with certainty, but not with the core gospel, but with applications of the gospel in different ways in both civic life and church life. You hear people say, we need to do things like the early church did, and then the Catholics and the Orthodox and the Protestants argue that their manifestation of the gospel is most like the early church. John's talking specifically about the certainty of the gospel itself, not time and place applications of the gospel. And he focuses on three key tests of knowing whether we have eternal life whether we're living in line with the gospel, theological, moral, and social. Theological, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Is he God incarnate? If not, then whatever it is that you think you are or believe, you're not a Christian. Moral, sin is incompatible with walking in the light. We ought to be growing in Christ-likeness over time. It's going to be starts and stops, two steps forward, one step back, but there ought to be progress in moral Christ-likeness, and then social. Since God is love, to say you love God, but to not love others is to be deceived. You can't love the unseen God if you don't love the people you see right around you. And so these three things, faith, holiness, and love, are the true signs of the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. If one or more is absent, something is amiss. So you can dress certain ways, organize churches in different ways, sing different songs. You can have liturgy or not, and all churches have a form of liturgy, that's, that's just doing the same things over and over. You can have different views of politics. John probably wouldn't care that much. His focus is on gospel, truth, life, and community, faith, holiness, and love. And the three are inseparable, and they're tests of being born again for him, but they're not a test that you go around applying to other people to see if they pass muster. These are tests you apply to yourself to measure growth and faithfulness. And I think these three tests our means to greater certainty as we focus on the truth of who Christ is. 
the life of Christ and his holiness, his moral excellence, and then we live in the community of Christ, we're going to grow in certainty, certainty of the gospel. In real human history, the eternal God entered space and time and revealed himself to people's senses, hearing, sight, touch. And the word he used for touch is not just a momentary touch, but the idea would be like a blind person using touch to, to know a friend's face. And all three, see, hear, touch, emphasize knowing or understanding. He uses two different words for sight. One means to see, another means to behold intelligently, to understand. So you might ask a child, do you understand what you're seeing? What you're saying is, do you see what you're seeing? They see it, but do they comprehend it? And John writes, we saw because God made himself seen. We understand because God has made himself known. And there were plenty of people who died without faith in the first century who saw Christ with their eyes. They saw his power. They saw his miracle. They saw his resurrection. But they didn't understand what they were seeing. And so Peter's not making a merely religious claim. He's making a statement of historical fact that has faith in life implications. All of life implications. Stephen Gold was a Harvard paleontologist who called himself agnostic because he was honest but he said, if pressed, I would bet against there being a God. But he, wasn't, he was honest enough to not call himself an atheist. And he suggested that religion and science belong to separate domains. Or he called it magisteria, borrowing from the, the Catholic world. And by magisteria, he meant realms of authority. He, was, he wasn't one of the, like, the, the, the new atheists, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, they call them. They were angry atheists. He was not an angry guy. He just was trying to help people think this through. So religion and science, he said, deal with fundamentally distinct questions. They only get along if they stay in their lanes, completely apart. And this came to be known as NOMA, non-overlapping, the, the acronym NOMA, N-O-M-A, non-overlapping magisteria. It was attractive to people, like, hey, that's great. Science is about facts. Bible's about faith. They have nothing to do with each other. Problem solved. You guys stay in your church. Don't bring that stuff out here in the real world. Everybody's okay. He was well-meaning, I think, but the problem is it becomes science is fact, faith is fantasy. And the Bible is not a science textbook, and it's a good thing because science textbooks get outdated really quickly, and the Bible doesn't get outdated. But what the Bible speaks about is it, it's, it speaks in truthful, factual ways. It uses history, poetry, story, parable. But all that it speaks to, it speaks truly about. And so there's not overlapping, there's not non-overlapping magisteria, there's just one magisteria, one domain, and God is the ruler of all. So John writes, the eternal Christ is in our space and time. He's made a way for us to have fellowship with God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. This is not different factually than saying if you drop a rock, it'll fall down because of gravity. The gospel is the facts of how God has saved us as much as the laws of nature or the facts of how God has made the cosmos. He's God of all of it. He rules over all of it. So John writes that what he has revealed to us, we proclaim to you. And he uses two different words to describe the gospel announcement, testify and proclaim. And both of those signify authority, but different kinds of authority. Testify is the authority of personal experience. He's an eyewitness of Christ. Arlen Hans and I are working on a team to, to hopefully go to Poland in December and train some Ukrainian chaplains. And three members of the team, two men and one woman, are former prisoners of war, two in Vietnam. Um, one, Charlie, spent six years in an 8 by 8 cell. 
And then um, another female, she was a POW in the Gulf War. And they have incredible stories of their experiences, their suffering, their resilience. They've had books written about their experiences. And so when they speak to these Ukrainians who are dealing with people who've been through and they've been through terrible suffering, they have the authority of experience. Their experience gives them credibility, authority. And Peter has this kind of authority. He has seen, he has heard, he has touched, he has personal experience. But he has more than just experience. He testifies to what he has seen, but he also proclaims what he's been given the authority to proclaim, the authority of commission, this derived authority. Christ commissioned him, sent him. In fact, he's done that for all believers. And this separates John's experience with other claims of religious experience by many people like Muhammad of Islam or Joseph Smith of the Mormons or Mary Baker Eddy, a Christian scientist, or just a guy at the gym who has his own strange ideas about God. John's experience is validated by the Son of God himself. He demonstrated his authority by his life, death, resurrection. And so now this old, tortured, tired man named John, he is neither cynical nor is he wondering what life's about. He's not wondering if he's wasted his life. He has great certainty. My kids, when they were going into late grade school, middle school, would sometimes ask, what about people who grow up in a home with different faith. How do we know if we believe this because we just grew up with it? It's a great question. And we had longer discussions about this, but in essence, what it came down to, I would say something is real and true, and whatever is not that is not real or true. The law of non-contradiction. Some grew up believing the earth is round. Some grew up believing it was flat. What you grew up with is not the question. Somebody grew up with what's true. What's true and real is the right question. What's the evidence for the truth of the gospel? And now where are you going to put your faith? My kids would not be born again because they grew up with two Christian parents. They are born again because they believe the gospel. And that's the goal or the end of proclamation, the ultimate purpose for John, fellowship, koinonia, and joy. Fellowship is the meaning of salvation in its widest sense. We have fellowship. We have reconciliation with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We've been born into the church. We have fellowship with one another. This fellowship is eternal life. It will lead to everlasting joy. So it's okay to lose self-confidence. Self-confidence is a very fickle thing. It's not good to replace self-confidence with fear and insecurity. But we need to have certainty where we need to have certainty. We must not be brash, arrogant, pushy people. We certainly don't want to be people who think we're certain about everything, but we must be people who are growing in the right kind of certainty, right kind of confidence confidence in the God and in the gospel. I don't remember all the details, but I, I read this story years ago about how this brash young man was trying to dismantle the faith of this simple, godly, older woman. And he was using philosophy and crafty arguments, and he was just running verbal circles around this, this older lady who couldn't articulate a, a defense of her faith. He got done, he smugly smiled, and then she just patted him and said, son, I don't know about all that. I just know Jesus, and I've known him for a long time. And all of his smug confidence just drained from him. Because she had the powerful relational confidence. So it's okay to study. It's okay to be able to respond to arguments at a time. It's okay if you can't. It's necessary to know Jesus personally. And to let that personal knowledge shape you into a person of confidence. My dad in his physical prime was a man of supreme certainty. <laughs> uh, he, in the workplace... And I heard legends of him in the workplace in a cockpit on a pipeline right away. He was certain 
That was his physical prime. That was up there on that top. Down here, when he was not in his physical prime, he moved into his spiritual prime. He was way less self-confident man, but greater gospel confidence man. And so the, the chronological bell curve, decreasing self-confidence as you age, doesn't have to become cynicism or fear. It ought to be increasing gospel confidence, ideally. And I think that's where John was. I'll never forget as my dad lay in a dark ICU room dying, saying over and over in the night, thank you, Father God, thank you, Father God. Our self-confidence comes and goes. Maybe it just goes. Our feelings of certainty come and go, but we can learn to be certain of the gospel. And our certainty must be well-placed. It, it needs to be based on both head knowledge, who is Jesus, and then heart experience with Christ. We know him personally. Pascal famously wrote, The heart has its reasons which reason knows nothing of. That sounds very modern, very postmodern, but he's not making a case for trusting feelings over fact. He was a mathematician, a physicist, an inventor, a philosopher. He was a child prodigy who did advanced math at a young age. Clearly he valued the mind, but after years of struggle and times of doubt and then finally deep faith, he knew you can't simply trust your own reason. Until to speak of the heart having its own reasons is to combat the idea that humans are brains on sticks, or as one person said, creeds with legs. God has made us such that we're whole beings. We're to love God with what? Our whole heart, soul, mind, strength. So we can live with certainty because God is ultimate reality and his mercy has made himself known to us. We can believe our beliefs. We can doubt our doubts. We can learn to trust joy and trust hope. I know people and some close to me who are suffering so much that they've learned to distrust joy and learn to distrust hope. Even when joy tries to come or hope tries to come, they've been disappointed so many times they just don't trust it. But you can trust Christ. Your hope is a fixed reality. Your final joy is a promise of God himself. And when all else is certain, you can be certain of this. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Let's pray. Talk to God. Be honest with him. Listen to him, and then we're going to worship him together.